Jesus is in your name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, down through verse 25. You can go ahead and turn there and follow along with me. I believe it's going to be on the screen as well. The title above the section in my Bible is The Birth of Jesus Christ. Sermon title today is Jesus Doesn't Try. Jesus Doesn't Try. Jesus is a man of action. He does. Doesn't try. Let's read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, Jesus, or when Joseph woke from his sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the Bible is really clear about a couple things. More than a couple things, many, many things. But this thing in particular, this idea that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And it's really difficult to understand. We were driving around and and, uh, Ransom has been asking me how tall Jesus is. And I've been trying to explain, you know, he's probably about my, my size, but I might be a little bit bigger. And then he'll ask, uh, but is he as big as trees? And is he as bigger than that tree, Dad? And I'm like, well, yeah, he is. He is as big as that tree. And, but he's also probably about my size, a little bit smaller than me, maybe, and dark, darker skin. And, and we're just trying to understand how Jesus can be holding the universe, but he can hold the world, Dad? And how he can be my size, because I can't hold the whole world, and I'm not taller than a tree or bigger than a house, but Jesus is. So it got us talking about Jesus being fully God and fully man, and trying to explain this. I'm like, buddy, it's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? Well, it's hard to explain, too. It's not just hard to understand, it's hard to explain to a child, it's hard to explain here. And it's just, these two categories that don't exist. If a cup is full of water, it can't be full of juice. It's either full of water or it's full of juice. Jesus, how in the world can he be fully God and fully man? And we can't untie all the knots to that, but we can just say what the Bible says. It's really clear that in the Bible, Jesus is presented as fully God. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So was the Word, later we're told in John chapter 1, this Word became flesh, so Jesus and dwelt among us. The Word is the fle- it became flesh and dwelt among us. Is Jesus. So Jesus was with God and he was God. So it, was Jesus with God or was Jesus God? Both. How? <laughs> You'll do this all day long and throughout all eternity. How? I, I don't know. But Jesus was with God and was God before the Word became flesh. So Jesus didn't just show up on the scene at Christmas time. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 
The Bible records that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Plural. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us, our, our. Plural. This is Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, the God of the universe. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he holds all things together. Colossians chapter 1, or Colossians chapter 2, I believe, tells us that he, the fullness of God in human form, Jesus is fully God. And yet, the Word became flesh. He is also a human being. And the birth of Jesus actually took place in history. The birth of Jesus took place in actual history. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In what way? Well, before we say the way, we just have to say that it actually happened. In our time, in our dimension, in history, Jesus was actually born to a woman named Mary. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her betrothed, had not come together with her. They had not consummated the marriage yet, and yet she was pregnant. This actually happened. A Bart, Bart Ehrman is a, uh, a very, he's actually done a lot of things um, that are against the Christian faith. He is a, a, an agnostic and he leans atheistic. But he is a New Testament scholar in North Carolina Chapel Hill. His actual title is the James A. Gary Distinguish, Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. It's kind of a mouthful. And he wrote a book about uh, two skeptics and telling them basically that the historical Jesus actually lived because there's this movement by modern day conspiracy theorists to say that Jesus was only a legend, that he didn't actually live in history. And so this agnostic, atheistic leaning professor in North Carolina who's uh, done a lot of work in New Testament studies and he's actually written a lot of stuff against the inerrancy of the word. He does not believe Jesus is God. He doesn't, any of that. But he, he wrote a book, Did Jesus Really Exist? And he argues for the historical Jesus. And this is what he actually says about Jesus in history. What I do hope, and he's, this is him, Bart Ehrman, in the book, Did Jesus Exist? What I do hope is to convince genuine seekers who really want to know that we know Jesus did exist. Virtually every scholar of antiquity, every scholar of in biblical studies, of the classics, and of Christian origins in this country, and in fact, the entire Western world agrees. Jesus historically existed. The answer to the question of Jesus' historical existence will not make me any more or many less happy, content, hopeful, likable, rich, famous, or immortal. But as as a historian, I think evidence matters. The past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the facts in the case make it quite plain. Jesus did exist. Jesus did exist. So the birth of Jesus Christ took place, and this is a historical fact. Now, how did this happen? What were the facts around this fact? How did it happen? Well, the text tells us, how it happened, took place in this way. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. 
And in this betrothal, it's a little bit like engagement today, but it's a little bit unique because in the betrothal period for Jewish people, you would be called husband and wife. They were not yet married in the sense that there had been the consummation of the married marriage, but they were husband and wife. And to break the betrothal required an actual divorce. So today, if an engagement is broken, the engagement is broken. It doesn't require any legal process to get, you know, or any hoops to jump through. You just break up and then find out who gets the ring or doesn't get the ring. Some tears are shed and some angry words are probably said as well. And the engagement is broken. But the betrothal was a bigger deal than our engagement today. It was a commitment to one another saying we are in this thing for the lifetime of our marriage or our life together. For life, we're together. This is We're going towards marriage. And as soon as the man was able to provide for this woman that he was betrothed to, they would consummate the marriage and then they would go into their life together before it was this betrothal period. And this is what we're told is the season that Mary and Joseph were in. Look at 18b. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Uh, before they came together. Because this was a historical event, it would be helpful for us to put ourselves in Joseph and Mary's shoes. Now, ladies, if you were Mary, and this happened to you, how would you go about sharing this news with your man? I mean, this news is going to change Joseph's life forever. And she's not pregnant by normal means. She's the only woman in the history of the world who's conceiving by the Holy Spirit. And she's got to have a conversation, a sit-down conversation. Now, honey, I've got to tell you something. It's going to be hard for you to believe. But I'm going to ask you to believe me. And guys, if you can put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Before they had relations, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, she became pregnant. The Word became flesh. The Father sent the Son. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is the entire work of God here. But they had to have a conversation about this. There were big things happening Eternal things happening. But they had to sit down and have the difficult conversation. Now, how do you think the conversation is going to go? We're going to find out here in a minute. Joseph doesn't believe her. But before we get there, there's some facts that we need to consider. Again, we're talking about history. These things really did happen. What does it mean that the Word became flesh? That she conceived by the Holy Spirit. So now Mary, who wasn't pregnant, gets a visit from the angel, and now she is pregnant. There is a baby in her womb. The Word becoming flesh. Well, Philippians chapter 2 is really helpful for us, and we need to think about this clearly because we don't want to be heretics. I think that's the first time I've ever used that word in a sermon. I don't use that word very often. But there is this idea out there that for Jesus to become flesh, he had to lose his divinity. So the word becoming flesh means that the word put his divinity aside and stepped in. And this idea of gnosis, okay, of coming down and being a human now means that his cognitive abilities or that his divinity is somehow put on pause. And now Jesus is only this baby in the womb. And this is an idea that's been popular for a very long time. 
but the church has rejected for a very long time. And this we need to clear up from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, because this is where many people get this idea. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 says this in Philippians. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And how did he empty himself? This is important. Did he empty himself by losing anything? Losing his divinity? Or did he empty himself by this way that only Jesus could? Did he empty himself by taking on something? Well, the text tells us he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, the word to become flesh, did not lose his divinity, but he took on humanity. He emptied himself by taking on flesh, not by losing divinity. And that's extremely important for us. The Word remained the Word. He, rem he remained God and He was now in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. This is a great mind bender. It can give us a lot of fun to think through and process and wrestle with. But He in fact was fully God and fully man. Meaning that Jesus, as He was in the womb, was also reigning on His throne. He was in charge of the entire universe, holding together the very womb that he was in. So he didn't lose and leave everything up to chance, as I've heard before. Lose divinity, go, and maybe this delivery will take place. He didn't lose his divinity. He was holding on to the very womb that he was growing inside of. It's mysterious, and it is glorious. The Word became Flesh. The big word for this, I'm teaching my son now as I'm trying to go through this, and he's picked it up. The hypostatic union. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. Now, Joseph does have a response. Look at verse 19, back in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's dark, there's a couple candles going. And Mary sits down. I'm going to do my best Mary voice. Baby, i got to talk to you. <laughs> and Joseph's sitting there, and his world is turned upside down. He does not believe Mary at first. It wasn't until the angel came. In his mind, he's thinking, who did this? Who did she go and sleep with? My world was planned. My life was planned. I wanted to be this, with this woman forever. And they, these were young kids, younger kids. We would consider them like in youth group today. Children. And can you imagine his gut sinking to his toes? You felt it before. A bomb drops and your world's changed forever. You have these moments in your life. You look, you look back in your life and you realize, oh my goodness. If you've had a baby out of wedlock, the shame that can come that people throw your way or you've experienced or felt. And if you haven't, you can at least imagine what that would feel like, the, how scary that would be. And in a culture that didn't accept this, here they were. 
weeping. And Joseph doesn't believe her. But he's a just man. And so he resolves. He actually made the decision that day, we're done. We're done. I'm going to break the betrothal. And we're going to divorce. But because he was just, he didn't want to make it public. And he did not want to drag her name through the mud. So even in the heat of the moment, how many men in the heat of this moment would want to publicly defame the woman? I want everybody to know, this is her fault. She did this. Public shame needs to come her way, not mine. I'm the just one. And instead, he resolves to do this thing quietly. But he's done. He's made his decision. He's resolved to divorce her quietly. Resolved. Joseph was devastated. It's over. One conversation. What's Mary thinking then? God, please, please, God, please make this clear. Please make this clear to him. Please show him. I'm telling the truth. No, Joseph, I'm telling the truth. Mary, I'm done. I don't want everybody to know. I'm not going to tell the world what you did, but I'm done. I can't do this. This is not what I signed up for. And somehow or another, he manages to go to sleep. I imagine there was a lot of tossing and turning for Joseph, a lot of tossing and turning for Mary. You've had those nights, maybe not as significant, but you've had those nights of tossing and turning, a huge fight. And here they are, they went to sleep angry. It's unresolved, it's done, it's over. The marriage, the betrothal's done in their mind after that night. Well, Joseph is considering these things and thinking about them Even though he's made his decision, something in him's still wrestling. He's in his mind just thinking about these things. I can imagine the tears flowing if he's not a crier. I mean, he's somehow emotional, angry, may have been throwing some things. Who knows? But he's upset. He's hurt. How could she do this to me? How could she do this to herself? What in the world? God. It's like his world was coming to an end. For her, the agony of that night, I'm sure. Talk about a long night. But he was considering these things. In verse 20, something happens. Her prayers, even though we don't know what she was exactly praying, but no doubt she was pleading with God. Her prayers get answered in verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the angel comes. Joseph and Mary both get their prayers answered. She wasn't lying, she's telling the truth. It's clear. This dream was so clear, it was so vivid, it needed no interpretation. He knew exactly what it meant. God, through an angel, spoke to him. This baby is, in fact, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He goes to bed in agony. He's wrestling in confusion. He finds out she's not lying. This is true. 
I'm going to have a son. His name is to be Jesus. And this son is born with a purpose. He'll save his people from their sins. Talk about sorrow to joy for Joseph and Mary. And here's what's so neat to me. He tells Joseph as well, name him Jesus. You've got skin in the game. You're a part of this thing too, Joseph. And your responsibility is going to be to name this boy. She's going to carry him in her womb, but you're going to name him. The kindness of God in that, it's just marvelous. The angel tells Joseph what's going to happen. It's the exact same thing that Mary had heard. Can you imagine the joy that is in Mary's heart as Joseph comes? You'll never guess what happened last night. You're telling me the truth. Hugs, tears, celebration. The Messiah will save His people from their sins. Are you kidding me? I know His name, Mary. Jesus. I know His name. That's why the song, Mary, Did You Know?, is a really terrible song. She knew. Like, you've heard last year, it's funny. Like, Mary, did you know that's your baby? She knew. Mount Mark Lowry, come on. Remember the funny guy, Mark Lowry? (coughs) (coughs) Sorrow to joy. So what does this mean? What does it mean? What does the angel's word about Jesus mean? You shall call him Jesus. And here's what this Jesus, this baby, will do. He's born with a purpose. He's born with a mission. And we're told from the beginning, from the, out of the mouth of the angel, that this baby was born to complete or to do this mission. And he is going to complete this mission. So he has a mission, and he's going to complete this mission. He is born, and he will save his people from their sins. This is the angel's word to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus became a baby, so Christmas, so that he could accomplish this goal. Saving his people from their sins. Welcome to Christmas. A baby born with a mission. Let's get particular. Notice a couple things about the words of the angel. Notice that it does not say that he will make people savable. Notice there's no mention about Jesus trying to do anything. Notice the statements of absolute meaning. He will do something. He will save His people from their sins. He's not coming to be a way to salvation. He is the way of salvation. He is not coming to simply open a door and to make people, make this door of salvation accessible where people can walk through it. So His death was not, His birth and death was not impotent needing other things to take place for it to be effective. This baby was born to actually save people from their sins. Not to make a way for you and I to be saved, but to save you and I. 
It's incredibly important. He will do this. And notice that it's specific. It says who He is going to save. He will save His people from their sins. Let me make one caveat, and then I'm going to not qualify everything after this. Jesus' death, in my sermon last year at the conference, I preached on this, you can still look this up, had many intentions to it. And there is a way that He died. Jesus came to live and die for everybody who's ever breathed. There is a sense in which He did that. To bring common grace, to bring common good, to bring glad tidings to everybody around the world, to bring a free offer of the Gospel to them. But He did not die for everybody in the exact same way. And the Bible is unbelievably clear on that. It's very clear. It's just the words right here. He died specifically to save His people from their sins. His, their. That's particular language. His people, their sins. And now I'm not going to qualify or caveat everything away. Just This is what it says. He will make, didn't come to make His people savable so they might accept this free gift. He didn't come that maybe they would possibly have their sins forgiven if they would come and apprehend the gift that they have. The angel said, Joseph, this son, this baby boy is going to do something. And he is strong to save. Jesus doesn't come just try and then fail a bunch of times, time and time again. Jesus comes and he does. He fulfills his mission. He fulfills his calling. He saves his people from their sins. Who are his people? Well, in this particular passage, it would be easy for us to just say He's coming to save Israel from their sins, but there's something more than that. Because this isn't talking about Israel in the sense of the nationality of the Israelites, the people of old. The His people that this is specifically talking about, because it's saying He will do this and He will save them from their sins, this is God's people from Jew and Gentile alike, from pre and post Christ. Jesus will come and save His people from their sins. This bride, when we talk about His people and their sins, we're talking about the very bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Those whom God chose to be the bride for His Son before the foundation of the world. And it includes some within Israel. But we find out from the New Testament that even in the Old Testament, not all Israel is Israel. It's only those who have faith in the Old Testament that are truly God's people. And so this is the bride of Christ. He will come and rescue. He will save His bride from the bride's sins. He will save His people from their sins. Very specific language. The Word became flesh not to try really hard, but on a rescue mission. And friends, He succeeded. He succeeded. He became flesh to save His people from their sins. And there are some implications to this that I just want to throw out for us to think about. Tidings of comfort and joy. These are glad tidings of comfort and joy. Here's some implications. No one can save themselves from their sins. No one can save themselves from their sins. And if you are a Christian, it's because right now, if you have repented of your sins and trust in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you. The reason you're a Christian is because Jesus saved you from your sins. 
This baby, Christmas, is about Him coming to do that for you. That's why you're a Christian. This baby, God in the flesh, came for you. He loved you. When you're fumbling about, trying things your own way, this Jesus came for you. He lived and died for you by name. You. By name. In your place. Jesus came to save Jared Sparks. And He accomplished His goal. He came for me. He came for Dustin Wright. His name. Your name. Graven in His hands. He came for you. He came to save His people from their sins. These implications are huge. This work of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago procured your future conversion. This is so important. Jesus' birth, life, and death. Your salvation isn't because you accessed what Jesus did. So power of salvation doesn't come from inside of us looking to God and apprehending it and coming and taking hold of God. Your salvation comes from Jesus through the years, through the decades, through the millennia, into a future conversion. He procured your salvation. He came to rescue and save you on the cross in His life, death, and resurrection. And He purchased you then. Names. Brett Yates, you're mine. And the reason Brett Yates is a Christian today is not because you found your way to God. It's because Jesus came to save His people from their sins. And He saved you. And what He procured, what He purchased in the future, He purchased a date of conversion. One day, Brett Yates, he's going to think he's finding and feeling his way toward God, and he's going to think he's doing all this and, and, and figuring this stuff out, but all this time, it's been Jesus, and he's been after him. And Jesus accomplishes his mission. He doesn't try, he does. And he saved his brother, Brett. He came for you, Brett. He came for you. The God of the universe came for you. Christmas. Power of salvation isn't in people. It's in God. So the cross is the reason you're a Christian. Jesus' birth, life, and de death, and resurrection. That's why you're saved. He came to save His people from their sins. All for whom Christ died in this way, and there are names, His bride... For every last one, they will come to know Him. Not one drop of blood wasted. Not one failure on Christ's part. He will save His people from their sins. He will do it. And the hope for your lost family members, for your friends out there, and this is just, I want to hammer this home, and I want to plead for us to be utterly dependent upon the Lord in this, and not dependent upon how we tell them the good news, or how much we talk to them, and we need to do all those things, but we need to plead the power for anyone's salvation is that Jesus would save them. There is so much hope for the world because the hope for the world isn't in the world. It's in this truth that He will save His people from their sins. He will do this. 
the deathbed, minutes before they die, if that person, he'll save them. If he came to rescue that one, that one will be rescued. And here's the beautiful irony of all this. We all get tied up in knots about this. If anybody wants them, you can have them. And if you'll repent of your sins and trust in him, you'll find him. And what I just said, if you'll think about those things deeply, what I just said within that 30-second gap, people want to fight and pick. (laughs) He will save his people from their sins. And if you want him, you can have him. Christmas is a celebration of the fact that Jesus came for His people. So our conversion, whenever it was, mine happened to be when when I was five years old, was the application of what Jesus did in His birth, life, death, and resurrection in my place 2,000 years ago. My conversion was the application of what Jesus did for me. He will save His people from their sins. He came for us. Now, for the non-Christian, there's some things to consider. If this is compelling at all, that Jesus will actually do this, and I think it's compelling because no other message in the world will say this, that God will actually save you. It's not up to you. God will save you as you're over there, I mean, working your fingers and your life to the bone, running like a hamster on a treadmill, trying to earn something from God and everybody else, at least trying to earn peer approval. The Christian message comes along and says, oh, Jesus actually can save you and what you're doing, you don't have to do anymore. No, no, I'll keep doing it my way. I'll keep doing it my way. No, that's offensive. I don't, if God's going to save me, I'm going to earn it. If this is repulsive to you, Jesus didn't die for everybody the same way. If it's repulsive to you that the reason you're a Christian isn't because of you, but it's because Jesus died to save his people from their sins. And if you're a non-Christian thinking about this, let me plead with you, repent and believe. I don't care if it's repulsive to you or not. It's the truth. And the truth doesn't bend to your feelings. So I'm going to plead with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls us to come and die, even to our feelings, to the things that are repulsive to us about what God says. Jesus said just a couple weeks ago, deny yourself before me. If you're ashamed of me and my words, like, we, we don't get the liberty to be ashamed of his words. We just get to say it, and then we either accept it or reject it. We don't want to tell God, God, I don't like that, so I don't want to believe it. The truth is the truth. It stands, and we conform ourselves to it or we don't. So if you trust Jesus, this baby who was born to live and die in the place of sinners, you can be saved. That's the good news of Christmas is that Jesus came to save His people. And these people that He saved were once just like everybody else, sinners. And so if you find yourself, and just, hey, I'm a sinner, well good, that's who Jesus came for. So repent and believe in Him. And if you trust in Jesus... If you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit will begin to show you over time. And many of us are still in this process. I know I am. I'm still learning 
As a believer now for 30 years, for 30 years as a Christian, I am still learning that this was not about my pursuit of God, but this whole thing has been about God's pursuit of me. I'm still learning that. I'm still learning that. I still have a tendency to think, but yeah, really, I'm smarter than a lot of people. And the reason God called me is because I would recognize how glorious He is and because how, how wonderfully selfless I would be and just love His people and care for them and be really humble. And I'd be the best pastor in the world and I'd preach fantastic sermons. And that's why. But I'm still learning, wait a second. In spite of my sin and rebellion, if He didn't come for me, I would have never come for Him. As Spurgeon said, if he did not choose me, I would have never chosen him. So I'm still learning. I'm a Christian because Jesus came to save me from my sins. This Christmas announcement, here's why I am the man I am. and I'm saved and I have my sins forgiven and my eternity is the way it is. It's because the angel declared the truth of what that baby would do. He will come and save me. And take my sins away. This was something that was told long ago. This would happen. It was prophesied about. It was spoken about of old prophecies through the Old Testament. Abound. Chapter by chapter we see the message of the slain Savior in the place of sinners. We see this all through the book of Genesis. If you, were, if you weren't here during the book of Genesis, go through those sermon series online and read, the, listen to those week in and week out. The gospel of Jesus on, on display in the book of beginnings. This has been spoken about page after page after page after page down through millennia. And this is where Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes us in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In verse 23, in Isaiah chapter 7, this was some 600 years before this took place. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 600 years. This was the plan. Christmas was the plan. And as you eat that turkey, ham, chicken, whatever you eat, Pepperidge Farm stuffing, whatever it is that you eat, and as you sit around that table, or as you open those gifts, and you see the smiles of your children or your grandchildren or your parents or grandparents over the next couple days, you see the joy that's there. You see the tears that are crying. Whatever it may be. During this season, think about this fact. This was the plan. Christmas. That God, God would come for you. That He would come in the flesh. That He would not sit on His hands idly by and say, To hell with you! But He would come and take hell for you. Christmas was the plan. Jesus was always the plan. Jesus is truly the reason for the season. If you've never heard that before, I coined that right now. <laughs> 23b, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did, not, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son. And he... Called his name Jesus. That's my boy. He called his name Jesus. 
Joseph got up and he agreed with the word of the Lord. Okay, took his wife, named his boy Jesus. And friends, when we hear the word of the Lord, we should emulate Joseph. And we should respond accordingly. And we should agree with God like Joseph did that day. And friends, in what I've preached about today, and I've preached and I do every single week, preach as best I possibly can. And I long for you, these tidings of comfort and joy. I, every week I want you to experience that. I want you to experience the comfort of Christ for you. I want you to experience the truth of that there's no condemnation for you right now. I want you to know that. I don't want you walk, walking out of here ever feeling like it's all up to you. And if you'll get what I just talked about, Jesus came to save His people from their sins, that you're a Christian because of what Jesus did for you, not because of what you did for Jesus. If you'll get that. And as we sing these songs, tidings of comfort and joy will come to you. And here's the good news. Even if they don't, God's grace is there for you anyways. Because God's grace is so big that it is not contingent upon your experience of it. It isn't experienced upon your emotional response to it. It's not dependent upon it. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you, even if you don't enjoy the grace that's there for you. And if you don't experience the joy, or the, gra- the joy and the grace that's there for you, maybe in the fact that you're hearing right now, there's grace for you even if you don't care. Maybe this morning, that fact overwhelms you. Let's agree with Joseph. Let's do the same thing that he did. And let's respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I thank you that... God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, you were in on this whole thing. God, you sent the Son. Jesus, you said, okay, I'll go get her. You came for us. Holy Spirit, you put Jesus in the womb of Mary. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. And God, your great love, you came for us because you loved us. You didn't come for us so that you could love us. You came for us because you loved us. And help us to experience that love here this morning. The fact that Christmas is historical, that it's real. Help us to think about what that means. That Jesus did come to do this for us, not to try. And He succeeded. Not one ounce of His blood is wasted. If anybody here doesn't know You, Jesus, I pray that they would repent of their sins and trust in You. That they would believe Jesus today. Help us to agree with Joseph, and to respond to your word in joy. Holy Spirit, point us to Christ. It's in his, his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.